Hello fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the monumental task of discussing, in story order, all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we again have our three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Doctor Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have the novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series and has not read any of the books. This time around, Sheena was going to be here with us, but that lucky so-and-so was off on vacay, so she's not here. This time around, it's the wise and wonderful Allison Fitch-Safried. Hello, Allison. I am just now learning, as we speak, that I am the consolation guest, not the first choice. Uh, the drama no, begins no, no, immediately. No. no, 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 you're the interloper. Isn't that what Jenny said the time that <laughs> the she did it? The interloper. Yeah. Interloper. The well, like, we were, I think we were initially going to try to do, like, four of us. We were going to have to that may still happen still. and you're welcome to those yeah. once we have you know broken you it's too yeah. late yeah <laughs> speaking <laughs> of which am i going to be broken by the end of the, the taping probably the <laughs> probably because this month as a fan or just as a total human being and, i'll be broken yes. all the above yes this month we're getting double the dicks Terrence Dix, that is, since both of the novels we're reading this month are written by that most prolific of Doctor Who novelizers. In this episode, we're discussing the novelization of the ninth Doctor Who story, Planet of Giants, which, incredibly, was the opener of the second season of the show. Imagine that this story opened the second season. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, Planet of Giants, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Lewis Marks that aired from 103164 to 111464, published by Target Books in 1990. As of this recording in May of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as a BBC audiobook, 112 pages. Oh boy. You may have noticed something upon looking at... Actually, no, you won't have noticed this, because I'm going to pass around the print version of this, and as you open it, you may notice something very odd. Well, Dalton will definitely notice it. Allison might not, because you don't know the print size of the regular Target books, but if you flip to the middle, you'll find that um, the print size is large print. Hmm. It's huge. That's much bigger it than the... <laughs> It's much bigger than the norm. 112 pages at that size of print. It's massive. It's normally like a like a ten point, like a small mm. kind of like pulp novel size, mm-hmm. and this is like more of like a twelve point, thirteen, fourteen. Well, the PDF you like... sent was about eighty four pages, and yeah. it was regular page layout. It wasn't yeah. a Kindle layout. The PDF is closer to the normal size that they are. This one is like this is a lot bigger than yeah, because they were trying to get a page count over mm. one hundred pages for this ridiculously thin story. So, so they did that uh, first-year composition trick of bigger, <laughs> bigger point size to get a larger page Yes, count. I had somebody that I was tutoring this week who actually did that. He had a, His paper was in 16-point. <laughs> I was like, why did you do that? And he said, well, it had to be an eight-page paper. I was like, 16-point, though. That's actually to accommodate page. the elderly and those yeah. who are well, visually impaired. Uh, like me, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> You may think that the reason why this book is so much shorter than the previous books is because the original televised story is only three episodes long. That, in and of itself, is unusual. 
Given I'm sorry. The fact this story was three episodes long. Three episodes long. Oh my mm. word! Yeah, I know, and I know what you're thinking because you're used to them being. I was four thinking parties. it kind of zipped along actually for one episode. I had really? no idea that it was three, three episodes. episodes, three twenty-five minute episodes, and the three parters were not the norm until. Yeah, 1989, 1988, the first McCoy season had the first one. So by that point, they were doing them as a cost-cutting measure. They were trying to get the same amount of stories into a 13-episode season. Here, though, the reason why it's three parts is because originally it was four. Yeah, this book has material that was deleted from the original version to bring the original four-parter down to three. Apparently, the original story had a lot more Hilda and Bert in it. And the BBC had a serials decree that the third and fourth episodes be edited and spliced together to create a fast-paced story. Not that that seems to have worked at all. This caused a problem later in the season when they had a single episode slot to fill, which they did with the Doctorless one-shot Mission to the Unknown, and it'll be a while before we get there, but needless to say, they didn't novelize one episode. They actually folded that into the 12-parter, the Daleks Master Plan, which we'll be doing in November. Anyway, <laughs> this novelization adds in, adds back all of that material that was cut. So while this pa- uh, this story seems paper thin to begin with, even minuscule, you might say. Huh? <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. I've been working on that all week. It might have been worse, and that's where Terrence Dix comes in. We have we've talked about Dix before, but this is your first introduction to Dix, both of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would that that were true? Um, <laughs> Terrence Dix, that is yes. Um, because Dalton, you did not read the first story. No. Uh, novelization and Allison, you haven't. This is your first experience with Dix. And boy, howdy. Uh, we have not talked about him in a lot of detail. Terrence Dix was born 1935, got his first big break in television after writing several radio plays because of his friend Malcolm Hulkey, who we will also get back to eventually because I love him as a writer. He's fantastic. He was working on The Avengers. The Steeden PO one, not the one with you know Captain America and the Hulk. In 1968, he started working in this, as an assistant script editor on Doctor Who. By the following year, he was head editor. He Dix was head editor. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they just keep coming, sure. don't they? The head editor on the dance floor. Yeah, the Dix jokes. Just <laughs> keep the portmanteau editor. He has. Head editor. And he got his first on screen credit writing, co writing the 10 part uh, Patrick Troughton Swan song, The War Games. And by 1974, he'd written his first book for the Target Range, The Auton Invasion, and would go on to write another 63 of them. He is the most prolific writer. The next prolific writer was Ian Martyr, who did 10. Or nine, depending on yeah. if you count that one book against him. Uh, he's also the most polarizing author of the series because while he does tend to add new material to his earlier books or rework the original story to make it better on the page, he's also known for being a strictly script page writer, which makes his work very hit or miss with most fans. So, yes. One more thing that's significant and kind of cool about this book and the next one we're doing this month in our uh, month of double dicking. Is that Planet of the Giants is Dick's last Hartnell novelization and his next to last Target book ever. He'll do uh, Wheel in Space the following year. While Dalek Invasion of Earth, which we're looking at later this month, is his first 
from the novelization in 1977. So we're kind of looking at the tail end and the beginning, but reversed. Yeah. I know, the tail end of dicks or whatever. But we're yeah. getting the full body. We're speak. getting the full body, yeah. exactly. All of all the, the full range of dicks that are possible. We're your dick, yes. Yes, let's have a moment to just kind of think about that for a moment, why don't we? By the way, listeners, I have to apologize. At the end of the last episode, Dalton Hughes here confused me because you you were teasing me about my love for Daleks, and that caused me to say that the next episode was Dalek Invasion of Earth. It's not. So we got our fans really excited for this episode, and what they're getting instead is Planet of Giants, or as Allison, you put it, Planet of Giant Dicks. That's what the PDF abbreviated to. I mean, I wouldn't be disappointed to find out that I was getting dicked, so... Oh, you had to wait until I took a drink to say that, didn't you? <laughs> Son of a bitch. You have to take a drink every time he says it. Right? Yes, I do. You're, well, you're going to need more beer. I think I'm going to need more beer. Also, one other thing. If you look at the uh, back of this, can you imagine paying three ninety five for this? In nineteen ninety. In nineteen ninety, oh, three ninety five for this. When earlier books that were twice as long were two fifty. Yeah. Because they had just done another price hike that mm-hmm. year, so that was the other thing. They had to get it over a hundred pages, barely. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's read the blurb and find out what this this month. What's month's it about? He, what's it about? <laughs> the doctor is feeling confident. When is he never? This time, the TARDIS has landed on Earth, in England, in 1963. But when he and his companions venture outside, they are soon lost in a maze of ravines and menaced by gigantic insects, and the insects are dying. Every living thing is dying. Well, that's so true. Meanwhile, in a cottage garden on a perfect summer's day, the man from the Ministry arrives to put a stop to the production of DN6, a pesticide with the power to destroy all life forms. But the men who invented DN6 will stop at nothing, nothing, I tell you, not even murder, in their desire to see DN6 succeed. Can the one-inch-tall doctor foil their plans? Well, obviously. No, they all die. They all die. They all die horribly. All righty. Um, tell you what, since Allison is new to us, we will start with you, and I will ask the first general question I have. What are your first impressions of this book overall? Well, whenever I watch a movie where I, where there's some sort of mystery or plot twist and I figure out what it is, that's always a bad sign because I'm never trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So if it's obvious to me, it's really badly done. So on the back of the book, when they say, the doctor is one inch tall, I thought, well, now we know who the murderer is. I'd rather (laughs) spoil the mystery of why there are so many large insects overall. And then the first sentence in a sterling example of a way to show, not tell was, it was a beautiful summer's day. (laughs) so it was actually much better than i expected because after reading the back of the book and the first sentence i thought this was going to be a very long hard slog yeah and then i thought it was actually surprisingly entertaining and zipped along compared to what i was expecting Mm -hmm. based on that that's good to know oh good because it's neither long nor hard for for a dick's book no (laughs) sorry that's just gonna the the hits keep coming folks yeah Dalton, what about you? Uh, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like uh, reading the blurb, it sounded like this was going to be another, like, Keys of Marinus mm. or another adventure where it's like there's a lot of stuff happening. And this right. story sounds like it could take place in, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. 
Like, it's very truncated. It's very just, like, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. And even though there's some jumping around between characters, um, secondary and and main characters, um, yeah, the whole story really takes place just in the span of an afternoon, really. Um, Which I, I felt like some of that could go along with them being small, with them being shrunken down, it, it adds this, like, the world's big and time seems to take longer, but it doesn't really. But it's just... <laughs> the story makes it feel that way. But it makes it feel that <laughs> way. Um, you know, even reading the back of this again, like, it makes it seem like there's so much more that's going to happen in the story, you know. Yeah. Mazes of ravines. You th- I, and it's just like, <laughs> it's they're, on, they're, on a, they're on a cobblestone path. Yeah. They're on... Mazes of ravines. But I thought that might go on and on and on. Right. It really didn't. They and, figure it out pretty quickly. And it's like they're an inch tall. This path can't be that wide. If you go in either direction, two or three minutes, you're going to find the side of the path. You're yeah. going to find grass or whatever's That's not true. the path. The scale shifts a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Um, it's never consistent. But yeah, I feel like this one, it, it, it could have been worse than it was. It still is not my favorite. It still is not something that that is like super interesting to me. But it was it was a quick read. It was an easy read. It was um it was an interesting read. But it was, it was just ultimately just kind of like flat. Okay. Yeah. In ways. So. And that was kind of my impression of it too. But then that's always been my impression of the televised story. So it's it it, it astonishes me that after an eight week break they decided to start season two with this. Yeah, this doesn't seem like the right place to jump back into no. the series. And it really isn't, because I, if I remember correctly, and I should have done this research before um, before we started recording, but I seem to recall hearing from somebody that they recorded Planet of Giants and Dalek Invasion of Earth all in the same block as season one, so that Caroline Ford, who was playing Susan, could leave. Yeah. And then they started the new recording block with the rescue, which we'll be getting in a couple of uh, in, in about a month. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Except even that's a weird place to start because it's a two-parter, and the whole point of the story is just to introduce a new companion. Almost nothing yeah. happens in that. But even that would kind of go along with uh, having only seen newer seasons. A lot of times they do introduce new companions at the beginning of a new season. Almost, so. almost exclusively. That that would that would set up that trend. So yeah, having this be like the start of the second season's like what? Yeah, but, it's just a weird one. Well, that and seasons back then were forty eight week long. Yeah, yeah, which is part of the reason why Hartnell ended up getting sick and having to leave. And Trout was like, oh, I'm not doing more than three years of this. Yeah, they didn't end up with a uh, more traditional twenty six episode season until nineteen seventy. Forty eight episodes. Forty eight weeks. Wow. Yeah, per yeah. year. It was insane. It was a lot of Doctor Who. But they were doing... The episodes were half an hour mm-hmm. instead of the hour-long episodes that I'm used to. Right. Having seen all of the new series. So, I feel like... I mean, that could work. It could. And and it did. It's surprising that they were able to chug through the way they were. I mean, that's part of the reason why Keys of Marinus was so dire. Yeah. Because they are having to do that schedule every... Fr- I think they recorded on Saturday yeah, nights. It's almost like a soap opera or something. It really yeah. is. It really I mean, it's is. it's not five days a week, but still. That's yeah. Tremendous. But that's how all television production was at the mm-hmm. time. But if you were doing, um, you know, a telefantasy series yeah. that's insanity, especially yeah. since if you watch this, sh- this story on screen, the one thing that is impressive about it is the miniaturization effect. Mm-hmm. 
Everything that's giant is huge. That. Yeah, it's lovely. Hmm. The uh, the fake fly, for instance, doesn't look fake. Hmm. It's it's really quite well done. Do they use uh, like models for it? Do they use camera effects to, um, to get some of the? A little bit of both. Okay. Uh, at one point when, uh, what's his name, and I can't remember the characters' names because they all kind of blend together. The one guy who was shot, the guy well, from the Well, there was Pharaoh and the other Fletcher. And Fowler, is Fowler? that the other one? Forrester? Forrester. Forrester is the murderer. That's yes. The, yeah, so it was and Forrester and I assume and Trump's new head Pharaoh. of the EPA. <laughs> ah. Yeah, because you know, if, if DN6 were around now, we'd all be dead. Because Trump would be like, oh, that sounds, that's, a, I can't do Trump to save my life, but you know. That's quite, that's a blessing. Why would you want to? Right. <laughs> exactly. But um, whoever does get shot, the way they see the body is as a photo blow up. It's actually the mm. size of a wall in the studio. Okay. Which is kind mm. of brilliant, but it's also kind of like, oh, they're looking at a photo blow up. Mm. Which is right. very 60s, but mm. it works. And, uh, yeah, in fact, I, I could go on about miniaturization for ages because I honestly thought about giving a brief history of how miniaturization has kind of ebbed and flowed in televisual stuff. Yeah. Um, because you've both seen Incredible Shrinking Man from the 50s, right? I have not. No? I've really? seen the poster. Oh, my God, you're both so young. Missed that one. Oh, the movie is great. The novel is even better, but it's also incredibly misogynistic and homophobic. You said it was from the 50s, right? Oh, yeah. So that's about part it's of the It's a redundant thing. statement. Yeah, exactly. So you don't get much in the way of, you know, miniaturization as a thing until the 60s. And then suddenly there's this in Britain. You've got um, Fantastic Voyage, mm -hmm. which is a movie with Raquel Welch and other people that I don't remember. But it was novelized by Isaac Asimov, strangely enough. Hmm. Yeah. And you also had... <clears throat> god-awful show by Erwin Allen called Land of the Giants that only lasted a season on ABC. It was in color. And people tend to look at this episode and that, and they say, they're made about the same time, but this one's so much better than that. Hmm. Okay. It's about the only thing that's impressive. And then you don't get miniaturization until the 80s, and then you get it's played for laughs, like Inner, inner, inner Space. Inner Space, I saw. Honey, yeah. I Shrunk the Kids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of a tapped-out trope, but not at the time that this was made. This would have been really exciting. Yeah. Not so exciting these days, though. Um, questions that you have after having finished the novel? I was not familiar with Barbara Wright or Ian Chesterton or Susan Foreman. I'm reading the names now, oh. so I remember them. But I thought that the half-page origin story actually worked pretty well for mm. this story and Susan's like with the fifth beetle of the boxcar children it seems like <laughs> the story really followed her in the yard and followed her into the box it was yeah. enough for me to I think grasp the characters pretty okay. quickly and easily so if you're coming to this new yeah I've not heard of any of these before and it right. was enough of an introduction without belaboring it right in fact yeah. you and I watched the Doctor Who and the Daleks movie together oh, no we mm -hmm. didn't we watched Dalek Invasion of 2150 AD the second one okay. the Peter Cushing one so you've seen Susan, but you've seen the disgusting, disnified version of Susan as a seven-year-old girl. Yeah, believe it or they not. They made her into a seven-year-old girl? Yes, they did. In fact, I'm probably wrong about the age, but yeah, she's a little girl. They made her young, though. They made her as young. Opposed mm -hmm. to... But they also made the main character Doctor Who, that is his name, and <laughs> Barbara and Susan. She had actual owl in wow. that Yes, yes. And um, Barbara and Susan. Perches on the seven year old shoulder and says, Ooh, over and over. <laughs> Might as well have done. 
for all the all that it has to do with the story. And Barbara and Susan are both his granddaughters. They're, oh, both of them. Okay. Yes, and Ian is uh, Barbara's uh, boyfriend, which he kind of is if you think about it. I mean, he is, but he isn't, but he is. Yeah. We talked about this last time. I think mm-hmm. their relationship being very fluid, amorphous, <laughs> and kind of just open. So mm-hmm. exactly, yeah, but. Good. So Dix has done a good job of yes. introducing yes. the character. Yeah. Well, and I thought from the introduction of Barbara, it was going to be more of a Lucy and Susan problem, where the mm. younger girl is interesting and adventurous, and an adult woman is just a shrew who kills everyone's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was actually pleased that the doctor is really bitchy and mean to Barbara and to Ian both, and he seems oh, to have yeah. so much contempt for both of them that it seemed quite equal opportunity. He's an equal opportunity <laughs> asshole the first time. He seems time. to hate <laughs> them all. He really does. <laughs> he does. He really Susan, does. not so much, but even one, every once in a while, she'll get the back end of it, too. Yeah. Well, every... I like that both Ian and Barbara at one point are thinking about, he's so confident, he's so often wrong, but what can you do? He's going to do what he wants to do anyway. Why even say anything? Yeah. yeah that was a nice touch. Point. They're getting used to that at this point. They are. It's like your favorite line from, uh, what was it? Was it Reign of Terror or was it the Sensorites uh, in which Bart, um, he, they ask him about the outer atmosphere and the environment. And he says, ah, oh, da, 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 da. And she says, so we've landed in the unknown again. I think it was in Reign of Terror. Yeah. yeah. Whenever they land in France and... They're discussing the the readings on his sensors, and he's just like, "Oh, it's fine." And she's like, "But do you know?" <laughs> it yeah, it doesn't matter because he's gonna do whatever he's gonna do anyway. <laughs> so, is this doctor just a misanthrope? I haven't oh, seen yeah. episode. Okay. Oh god, yeah. yeah. I assumed. Yeah, because the movie version that you've seen, played by Peter Cushing, is a lot more likable. Hartnell, nah, Hartnell can be likable. He can be very sweet, but. He's generally referred to as irascible. In fact, I think that's um, Dick's stock phrase for him, that he's irascible. I know that's how I learned the word. It was from a Dick's novelization when I was a kid. But... I do like how cheerfully macabre he is when other people try to be optimistic. And what I wrote down is... (laughs) Someone suggests that the worm, quote, died naturally, end quote, and he retorts, no, it died, quote, suddenly and violently, end quote, <laughs> from murder, which has its own posture and appearance. <laughs> yes. It's quite gruesome at times. Yes. But he is astute in his observations, yes. because mm-hmm. even... Turns out to be true. Uh, yeah. He, he could <laughs> yes. tell just from the way the earthworm was that something... Not was it was poison. It was murder. It was murder. <laughs> it was interpersonal conflict. Of course. It's not like the later doctors who, I mean, like the Peter Capaldi doctor now who could probably say, oh yeah, he was murdered. I've murdered so many people in my time that I know what it looks like. Right. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> does the doctor experience. say things like that now? Well, kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does admit to the fact that he's killed people. He Lots of them. In later iterations, he, he can look back and see where he's done things wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but, but does he say it casually like there might still be some buried in his backyard or in the trunk of his car? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Depends on the doctor. <laughs> All right. Yeah, the, the, I've only seen a few episodes of right. the quality. The David, the David Tennant doctor would probably be my like, oh, yeah, they're buried in the back. Yeah, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. I, like you do. I break a few eggs. Maybe have a line about, thank you for reminding me that I have to go handle that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Shovel full of lime. And in fact, it's going to be Terrence Sticks in the next book that have, um, manages to bring to life on page Hartnell's line about I never take lives except when my own is in jeopardy. That changes, obviously. Yeah. That will change 
greatly, but we're not talking about those doctors. But did, not, about, did yes. that happen in the 60s episodes already? Um, I think about no. a kinder, gentler time with heavier network control over stories and what's a appropriate younger, for all ages programming. It wow. will happen occasionally, but it won't be the doctor doing it intentionally, if, as far as I remember. I was going to say a lot, a lot of that, too, is just this is a younger doctor. This is a first iteration of the doctor. This mm-hmm. is the doctor as a younger version of himself, even though his appearance is an old man. But yeah. He's only, he's a mere stripling of 400 years by this <laughs> point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you would say that Barbara definitely leads a lot more as a character. Well, I expected the character to be just unbearable. <laughs> and so she was more bearable than I expected. Oh, and wow. I thought that Susan would be developed a lot more than she was. Nah. And she was almost a non-entity. Which oh, yeah. She's almost always yeah. a non-entity. <laughs> yes. Like I said, I'm thinking, it's not just C.S. Lewis who does this. You see this even like in Game of Thrones where the oh, little God, girl yeah. or the younger girl is allowed oh, to be yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And then puberty happens. And to the male author, she is suddenly a terrifying or completely boring creature. I thought we'd see more of that. Yeah, that's true. But Susan was completely bland, I thought, yeah. in this. And so. it's weird because this is her next to last story. She does get a lot more screen time and a lot more page time in the next book. But even then, the way she leaves it just kind of happens. Yeah. How old is she supposed to be? Well, <laughs> that's been an object of debate. They always say school podcast. in the novelization. Yeah, she's supposedly 15. She looks 15. Um, the actress who played her, I think, was about 23 at the time and already had a child by that point. And later, fan fiction puts her at anywhere from 15 to 150. Because Galfran, she could be... Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. Because, is, he, uh, is she actually the doctor's granddaughter? That's another point of debate. Okay. I tend to think yes. The new series seems to point in that direction. Later episodes of the old series tended not to. But, yeah, it's it's hard to say. But definitely, uh, you notice that <laughs> Dix actually puts the word granddaughter in quotes? Yeah. When he introduces her? Yeah. I yeah. noticed that. He's... He seems to be, by 1990 anyway, of the school that doesn't believe that she is his granddaughter. I feel like even if she isn't his actual blood relation granddaughter, she's at least someone that he has an affinity for, someone that he feels uh, a need to mm-hmm. have around, protect, you know, get through things. So, like, But is she definitely a Time Lord? That's another point of contention. She's definitely a Gallifreyan. She yes. may not be a Time Lord. Because as we've said before, <laughs> all Time Lords are Gallifreyan, but not all Gallifreyans are Time Lords. Ah, I did exactly. not know that. Yeah. So. That's all right. Now you know. And no one's half, half the, the battle. battle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been wanting to do that for so long. <laughs> he always describes Babs, though, in the harshest way, which is probably why you got that impression that she'd be shrill. But it was just at the beginning in this book, it seemed like. Yeah, because one of the things that I cannot stand about Terrence Dix is the fact that in the novelization of the very first book, he actually says something about Barbara along the lines of, she'd be a lot prettier if she smiled more often. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've heard Does that he before. actually smile baby at yeah. her on this, from the sidewalk. Yes, exactly. Well, he does say in the first mention of something about her having a permanent facial expression of disapproval. Yes. And, and then he talks about Ian being the fun teacher, and that's why my expectations were so lower yes. that the rest of the book was better than I expected. Yeah, and that's the weird thing. If you look at stills of Jacqueline Hill, who played uh, Barbara, 
she's a gorgeous woman, but she also has what you might call resting bitch face. That if she's not smiling, it's kind of like, mm, there's a very permanent frown I resemble there. that remark. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you don't. But she was playing a character a lot younger than she was, so I, I guess that's where the where it comes from. But Barbara, as you and I both know, yeah. is an incredibly formidable woman. Oh, she has. she's so much stronger than you they even really let on yeah. in any of the descriptions. You really have to just see her in action, see what she's gone through to to get where she's at. She in, in most of the other stories she's been one of the the more um she's a lot of the problem solving. Yeah. She's a, she's the more one of the more like aware characters. A lot of times when things are going on, she's m- more in tune with it before anyone else is. Yeah. Um whereas I expected her to say you should not climb those high objects. You should eat more oat bran. <laughs> you should take a nap. That did not happen. Which no. We would love someone to say that to Susan at some point. Yes. Eat more bran. Eat more bran. Or to the doctor. That would be to yes. the doctor. Yes. Pull, pull, pull your skirt down. We can see since you're up on that high ledge. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You could see. You could see Barbara being the one who gave out demerits. Yeah. Yeah. She would be the one. She. She would be a tough teacher, but I feel like this. This like new adventure that she's she's been forced into. She's not a teacher anymore. Mm-hmm. She yeah. is this companion to the the doctor flying around time and space. So, given where she's been and where she's going, yeah, she's she's kind of had to reassess things too. Exactly. In fact, it's Ian's training as a science teacher that comes more to the fore in this story. Because this is obviously yeah. the sciencey one. Usually, what they would do, since there was still an educational remit to the series by this point, they would have the science fiction story that would teach you something about science, and then they'd give you the historical, which teaches some history. Which is why he's the science teacher; she's the history teacher. So, is this about the same ration of education that we would have from Duke on GI Joe before he <laughs> yes. says? Now you know, and no one's half the battle at the end of its 30 seconds. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it, it's not that kind of end-of-the-episode snippet. It mm. interspersed through, and I think that's why the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about the story, I think, but we'll get back to discussing Barbara and Ian here in a second, but we do have to discuss this, is the fact that Silent Spring by Rachel Carson came out in 62. So that would have been very much in everybody's minds by that point, even two years after the book's publication. We were just then starting to realize, oh my god, pesticides are going to destroy the environment. They're going to destroy the ecosystem, and they may end up destroying the planet. So this is very much of the time. Isn't this topical in 2017, talking (laughs) about humans destroying the planet? Yeah, Hmm. just a little bit. But then they just realized they were doing it. Right. We know know for sure we are, and how much money is to be made by doing it yeah we all went silent there for a moment because we're like oh my god yeah i've noticed that a lot with the books we've been reading though they've all really had a lot of modern uh implications and it's just like okay they all still have some relevance yeah yeah which is quite nice in its own way but kind of terrifying terrible and addressing in another way yeah. we, should, we should be past this by now yeah something we that they were discussing better. in 1964 is still an issue i've got to say it's a pretty shaky business plan though if this literally kills a cat on contact <laughs> how right. long does he think he's going to be able to distribute this forester think he's going to be able to distribute the product before oh, someone no. figures it out exactly i mean <laughs> it's even affecting that cat there oh, on the yes. bed oh yeah, frisky was um we were recording 
recording this in in my uh, in my apartment for once, and one of our cats is up on the bed, which is nearby, and Frisky is sneezing. Poor thing. Cat I will refer to as the amazing floofball. He really is. Luckily, he has not gotten into any DN6, at least I hope not, because he was sneezing a moment ago. But yeah, the business plan, the, the, the plan for this is just insane. It does seem very Trumpian. It's kind of like, oh yeah, let's just kill the guy from the ministry, we'll get rid of the body, and no one will ever know. Yeah, we'll fire Actually, the head of the FBI, and no one will ever know. I thought that made more sense than what once he realizes how quickly it kills, he's undeterred. I thought yes. that was a little over yeah. the top. But listen, 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 this is where I hit my limit. Well, that was a little too far. Right. The time machine and the miniaturization, that was fine. But this business plan really will not hold up, sir, and we are oh, not yeah. giving you the loan. <laughs> yeah. And yet somehow, yeah, they think it's going to be perfectly fine. Yeah, the secondary characters in this book are just bizarre, which is why I prefer to talk about Barbara and Ian a little bit longer before we get into them. Yeah. Because Barbara is... Well, what do you think? Because we usually love Barbara and how she's a prime mover of the plot, but here, other things are happening to her. It's just kind of. I don't. I don't know if it's if it's Barbara or if it's the story. I don't. It, it like if, given the framework of what's going on, if she's just like, I can't really do anything. I don't really have time to shine. You know. Yeah. This really isn't like any any situation where she. It's okay. Pause. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, yeah, there's really not like a, a, a chance for her to like pull out any knowledge or or protect Susan from anything or fight with the doctor and be snarky and silly. Like, True. they're really throughout the whole story. There really isn't a point where like Susan can shine where she has in in other books mm-hmm. that we've read. Like this one, really, there wasn't a whole lot for her to do really and even the doctor like in in the end like he just they're just trying to get back to the ship eventually he's even just like i don't know there's really anything we can well, do. well he does have an insane plan to blow up the lab <laughs> well there is that <laughs> so, by switching on the gas and standing in front of a flame and saying don't worry it'll only melt the can which will explode right like a thousand ton bomb while we stand three feet away you will be fine so it, it was typical, an action it's not a smart one yeah. so a typical <laughs> so, doctor yeah, plan yeah. 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 yeah but even that was it was kind of that was motivated by getting them back to the ship it's mm-hmm. how can we get out of this house and get back to the TARDIS and just get inside, close the doors, and act like this didn't happen. Which is what it's it seems like. It's so many like. fans want to do with this story, too. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's you're an inch tall, and there's this crazy pesticide that's going to kill everything on the planet, and mm-hmm. there's a cat that tried to eat you, and... And then died. Yeah. And then died. So, yeah, I, I feel like <laughs> the story itself is just kind of hindering Barbara from from being able to be more complex and yeah. be the Barbara that we have seen before yeah there's just really not anything much to work with exactly and i noticed earlier you misspoke a bit and you said susan and that's even more true of her yeah because she's yeah she's reduced to a cipher in this story yeah yeah they're they're pretty much susan a lot of times doesn't have a lot to do anyway there have been points where she has had a lot to do or Mm -hmm. that she's at least been an integral part of the story but this one you could almost not even mention that Susan was there. Yeah, in fact, I keep forgetting that she was. Yeah. Well, and you're, the two of you are visualizing the cast, mm-hmm. and I'm not. So I don't know their usual presence. Right. And 
none of them really stood out to me. Ian stands out as the most manic and energetic, yes. but also quite flat. So he stands out as one who acts the most. But actually, Forrester is the most interesting person in the story. Really? I thought as the murderer, the most personable, uh, because yeah, well, because he's so entertainingly maniacally evil. Yeah, and yeah. then I, I like that there's a moderately evil scientist. He's willing to go along with covering up the murder and maybe some death. Yeah, because he's <laughs> some death. Well, right. because he's ameliorating death. the world hunger situation. <laughs> right. But there are certain lines he won't cross. They actually were more engaging characters in this than the heroes. Wow. For someone who is not familiar with any of the actors, now that's interesting. That's really interesting. And they have almost equal time yeah. in, the, in the book. Well, they kind of have to, because there's not much for anybody to do in this book, and actually, the murder part is a more interesting thing. Odd, given that it's called Planet of Giants, and you've got these one-inch-tall characters trying desperately to make their way through this maze of gigantic creatures. There should have been more of that. Yeah. yeah. There was a fly. <laughs> there was a fly, and there was an earthworm, and there was a cat. And that's it. There was mention of birds, but no actual matchbox, birds. No birds. And then the ma- drain pipe. There is that. There's, there are... there's object manipulation with yeah. the corks. And well, that's the sort of thing they can pull off with sets. And I think that's why. Yeah. Whereas the other stuff has to be done. I mean, the cat, for instance, is basically stock footage of a cat blown up. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a terribly sure. violent image. This exploded cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas at least Incredible Shrinking Man had going for it the fact that they were able to do he fights a, a spider at one point. And that's terrifying. Because spiders are terrifying anyway. Yeah. But if you're an inch tall and you've got a spider, it's like holy shit. Yeah. But here they can't really do that and that's understandable and it kind of shifts the focus away from the giantism to the environmental part which i think was kind of the point yeah yeah it is really just a bizarre story in so many ways it's also hard now to read it as fresh because i didn't realize that this came out a couple years after silent spring and Mm -hmm. then i remember 1990s sort of the zenith of earth day celebrations as well and sort of rediscovery of environmentalism in a way that's sort of a well was a cultural norm until pretty recently um it seems like a really tired flat obvious environmental story in some ways but i have to think about in context it was much fresher at the time except if with dick's writing it i think if another writer in the series had done it the environmentalism might have come out a bit more there would have been more uh, focus on it but i think dicks dropped the ball <laughs> uh when it came to doing that because i'm not sure that was really an interest of his with mm. the story i think he was just saying okay i've got three episodes of script wait no i have four episodes of script i'm gonna put in all of that extra material that was taken out which means we get more of hilda and bert christ almighty i really like the idea of a village where there's one building Yes. Well, it's the store, and then the the phone office is in the back of the store. Yeah. But the cop works out of the phone office. Yeah. And, and they're married. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The constable is. Yeah. They the... say that the multi-purpose uh, building is a, a new architectural innovation. But yeah, apparently, it certainly is not. <laughs> way ahead of the time. Yeah. Yes. And the weird thing <laughs> is that that really dates the story to some degree because it is such a you know 
back cottage, uh, English cottage, back garden type of murder mystery, and that's been compared to that. Yeah, I was gonna say even even the fact that they're they're still like the operator. They have to call yes. to connect the call. Yeah. Is, it just shows how this is supposed to be, you know, this is the countryside. This is the middle of nowhere. But this they is... talk about that. Like it an antiquated phone system yeah. and that sort of thing in a way that it didn't seem awkward and weird. It seemed like here's a story that's set 30 years ago. Well, that... it's kind of weird because um, I worked as an answering service operator in uh, grad school in uh, Baton Rouge in 93, 94, and we were still doing things like mm. trunk lines and such, but not the switching of the, the yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, they had just switched away from that, in fact. But that's the Deep South in uh, America, so of course they're going to use antiquated technology. Yeah. Sorry, I think we just lost maybe two of our listeners when I said that. <laughs> but, the other one yeah. fell hey, <laughs> but I'm from the well, South. Yes, so. but not the Deep South, though. Mm. We we accept you. We accept you. With one, one, one of us. I'm from I'm from the last state. I'm from the last state that seceded. So this is true. Yeah. There you go. So we still yeah. You, we can hang. North Carolina doesn't. Count. <laughs> That's the word North in its name. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> Uh, right outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought that's where I was born. I lived in Denver, North Carolina, oh. until I was five. Familiar on the lake. Oh. Yeah. I went to school at Western Carolina. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, after yeah. that digression, well, we'll catch up yeah. later. <laughs> we'll talk later. That's fine. I'll um, even leave that in. Talking about the old-fashioned, old village, tiny town. Yeah, so um, I thought that was supposed to be kind of slapstick. Like I thought it was really? supposed to be absurd and quaint that oh. the cop... The store and the operator is you know, one building and two people for right. these three different entities. I and thought it was supposed to be over the top cute. But. And yet it's played absolutely serious in the televised version. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's like, like a honeymooners kind of thing. Well, they're kind of cute so. in their own way, but they're not meant for comic effect because they're the oh. ones that kind of crack the mystery. They're like, wait a minute, that's the same man that I heard before. I read that all wrong as the over the top busybody who's going to turn on a loud well, sound to wake them up. Now and I think that's. Why are they no, that's the wrong guy. I know everyone's voice. Yes. I thought it was supposed to be more of a... I think that's Terrence Sticks. Okay. I think that's putting his stamp on it, because I, I did notice in my notes that uh, she, um, Hilda really is the uh, Mrs. Kravitz of Doctor hmm. Who, always looking out the window and going, Abna, can you see what she's doing today? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of got that feel to it. Yeah. But yeah, it's strange. I'm sure with another writer we would have gotten more of the environmentalism and less of the, you know, playing up the comical notion of Hilda and Bert, who are very paper-thin characters, but still, it's kind of strange. Um, what else? What else strikes you in this book? Because I've got plenty of stuff. Doctor has a Ken Ham answers in Genesis moment. There's a kind of pattern to it all. I actually was oppressed enough I wrote this down. And a pattern suggests a brain at work, a brain with some kind of purpose. Oh. But he did not make it all the way to six-day young Earth creation. <laughs> I thought maybe that's where he was headed, but he dropped that thread. Yeah, I'm kind of glad he didn't. Doctor Who tends to ignore religion, which is a blessing. Well, but also cultural context, that would not have had that sort of significance no. in 1963. Although no, no. 1990, you had that as a cultural have, force. Yeah, you would have had the first, the first faint glimmerings of uh, creationism rearing its ugly head. So is most is most of the dialogue <coughs> word for word from the script? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, Dix does make changes when necessary. 
Uh, every once in a while, there'll be a, a line of dialogue that'll just be ridiculous in context, and he'll change that. He didn't do it with this one. <clears throat> or rather, I didn't notice it, because I didn't pay that much attention when I was watching the story again. I was like, eh. Yeah. You know, playing games on my phone while it was playing in the background. <laughs> you know, what story did I do that with last time? Oh, it was uh, Reign of Terror. Yeah, the last one. <laughs> yeah. But the book was so much better in that case. Yeah. Whereas here, it's basically straightforward. Every once in a while, when we got the new material, what there was of it, I'd say, oh, I don't remember that. I'll have to go back and check that. Turns out I don't have to, which I'm very happy about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's not there. But yeah, it's almost line for line. Um, speaking of lines... Did you have a favorite line or a least favorite line? You obviously talked about the um, the, mur- the worm murder. The yes. worm murder, yes. <laughs> the worm murder. That was Suddenly and violently. <laughs> yes. The attitude of death, the posture of death. Yeah. And that line about um, you know, creationism or rather uh, intelligent design. Well, I actually thought it was leading into some later observation, and it did not. No. Just talking about the landscape architect. I think just just echoing back the the conversation about that Barbara had in Reign of Terror with the Doctor, there there's kind of that ongoing thing of of Barbara and Ian questioning the Doctor, which continues in this one where they're just like, how do you know what happened? How do you know we're in the right place? How do you know we're in the right time? How do you know that, you know? They just question him, and eventually they just kind of just like give up. They're just like, <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna answer us with some something no matter what we ask him. So. Right. Us questioning him in the end doesn't really get oh, us anywhere. No mutual exasperation society yeah. at the oh, beginning yeah. that everyone participates in, other than maybe Susan, who seems yeah. to be yeah. floating well, on a crowd. She's cloud. used to it. I was going to yeah. say, she's <laughs> used to it by this point. She's just like, guys, like, how many adventures have you been on so far? How many... You always like it. Right. Everything <laughs> ends up fine. Even though... Even though she almost died in the last story. And almost all of them. <laughs> Would we have noticed? No. Not in no, this one. we really wouldn't. That's the same. Here's the interesting thing, though. They actually are in the right place, in the right time. Yeah. They are in England. Mm. They are in 1960... Well, whatever year they're in at this point, 63. It's actually yeah. 64. So he's gotten them to the right place in time. It's just this bizarre accident has happened. What did... Let me ask you the question. What did you get the impression was the cause of this miniaturization? Well, they explain it as when they were materializing something about the pressure being too much for them. So the TARDIS itself, like, miniaturizing itself to fight the pressure, which sounds like an effect of pressure. Mm-hmm. Been... It was actually pretty good technobabble at yeah. the beginning. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I question the scientific education value of that explanation <laughs> um, for an all-ages programming. I didn't, but it actually had a nice veneer of viability, I thought, at the beginning. And then at the end with the the seed, it was just so unbelievably stupid that it wasn't even entertaining. But at the beginning when they talked about the pressure and that yeah. affecting <laughs> things, and well, Earth's atmosphere has this sort of pressure per square inch. Others are much more dense or much more diffuse. That that satisfied the yeah. yes the, the like, need for mm-hmm. a veneer of scientific respectability. Okay. Now you mentioned the seed. What were you? 
And then at the end, well, the doctor says, well, if we're regular size, the amount of poison that Barbara had will be 170th. Yeah. And then they take a seed with them, and then they figure out that they are back to regular size by seeing the seed shrink. And I guess I never really... I did not think they even bothered to try to give an explanation as to why things in the TARDIS would change... Things in the, uh, in the TARDIS would change back to their original scale, but other things that they brought with them yeah. would not also change. Why does yeah. not everything within the environment yeah, change? Yeah, why is the seed changing? In fact, I was... I, I thought they should have, you know, put out something that kind of sounded slick, but I didn't even try. Yeah, I was about They to... did not even try, but dicks did not even try. Dicks did not even try. There was yeah. not enough dicks on this dance floor. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's fine. You're entering into the spirit of the thing. I couldn't not. That's perfectly fine. Well, I was about to propose an explanation for that, but then I realized, you know, um, it doesn't make any sense. Because I was going to say, oh, well, if it's not from within the TARDIS, if it's not native to the TARDIS, then it's not going to... Except why would that even work? Because Ian and Barbara are not necessarily native to the TARDIS. I mean, you could probably trot out some later technobabble as Artron energy, oh, but no. It's like, you know, when I know who the murder is right away, it's painfully obvious because I'm never trying to figure it out. So, mm -hmm. no, it, it, it's a little silly to say, all right, I was down with everything until the scene, that I could not take. I know it's extremely <laughs> silly, but when it's that noticeably eye-rolling that takes you out of the story, it's right. really bad that they didn't try to toss out a perfunctionary explanation. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back and trying to... Whereas the to... earlier fake perfunctionary explanation worked very nicely. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking back through here to see if there was anything. And yeah, there's nothing. It's no. literally just says Ian puts it on the table and just watches it shrink. Yeah, which is what so, happens on screen. Yeah. It's the one special effect shot that's really kind of like, oh, they did this in 1963. That's oh, yeah. 64. So. That's impressive. But yeah... Obviously, there's an unformed joke in my head about dicks and seed, but I'll just let that pass, <laughs> shall I? Probably just as well. Yeah. It's just, uh, when I think about that explanation, it's even in my notes, the explanation of why they're so small is actually silly if you think about it, because the TARDIS does get tiny in the new series for an entirely different reason. But given how the inner dimensions are d differ from the outer ones, something to do with that would have been more sensible. Yeah. But no, no, it's the Capaldi story with the um, the boneless, the the TARDIS shrinks and the Doctor's trapped inside it, and he can't get out. <laughs> he can't get out of the TARDIS because he's small, which is oh wait no no that's not true. The outer shell gets small, but the inner dimensions are still large, which is why he can't open it. Yeah, and which is why he's able to do the um, thing from uh, Adam's family routine to walk the TARDIS away from the uh, railroad, which is just hilarious. Yeah. So yeah. much better than anything that happens in this one. <laughs> um, as far as, I did have one line that I thought was hilarious, which was in chapter four. I don't think I'm making myself very clear, he said, which meant in Whitehall terms, you're being very stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty brilliant. When, when Dix does that sort of thing, he's really quite good he just doesn't have a lot to do with this particular one 
Oh, and there was another one in chapter 9. It was a terrible end, he thought, for someone who had once roamed through space and time, flushed down a sink like some unlucky bug. Yes. <laughs> what, a, what an end to have after everything that he yes. would have done to die. Like... Yes, what a glorious end for the Doctor. And it's like, this is just no. the first Doctor. He doesn't even know yet. Right. Flush down the toilet. Is it just me, or does, is Ian carrying around the idiot ball something hard in the story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Ian in the story is not Ian. No. No. Is he not usually kind of a buffoon like that? Or over enthusiastic? It depends. He's he's a he's a little bit of the, the muscle head, but like he also is a science teacher, so he's smart about things. He's curious. He helps the doctor figure shit out a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But this time it's just like yeah. yeah. Well he still gets the science, but he doesn't notice that Barbara's like, Oh stop, please stop talking about this and right. he doesn't connect it. Yeah. And it's it's even worse on screen, but here you're thinking, why doesn't he notice that she's reacting this way? Right. She's upset about something, and this is Barbara, mind you. Barbara doesn't overreact often. No. She will sometimes scream, yes, but she's not a screamer. But so she always to... reacts to things. She yes. always is the character that will react to some to a you know stimulus. So yes, Susan's being slow and groggy, or Barbara, excuse me, is being slow and groggy and not. Acting herself, and she touched this seed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. There had to, had to just have been something. Totally missed that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Which is just odd for him. Yeah. Foot and mouth circulars. <laughs> I just happened upon that. Yeah, my, like my that. eyes went straight to that. It's like, oh, yeah, 1963 in the country in England. Yeah. yeah. That makes absolute sense. But that thing about the tone... Sending the tone through the phone. Yeah. At the times that the Dick Dix wrote this, it's not clear that his readers would have even known what that was, but it's positively antediluvian now. But I thought it was explained well enough. Yeah. You got the idea. Kind of is, but even the, the fact that phone technology had changed even that much by 1990 is kind of uh, interesting. I read somewhere recently that Judy Bloom updates her own books and the main yes. thing she updates is the technology so that super fudge now has super Sometimes. fudge asking for yeah for like an ipad yes. and cd or cds hmm. or something well cds mm. would already be antiquated i thought that was interesting oh yeah um the new dub of sailor moon does that hmm. because it was produced in the 90s and now they make references to cell phones and texting and such and it, it actually works. I mean, if you're trying to sell a show about teenagers, you definitely have to do that. It makes yeah. more sense for young adult literature because I mm. recently was re- reading an acquaintance's rant about uh, some some book of, you know, 50 must-reads for children that came out in the 50s or 60s. And she mm. was saying, look at what high expectations we used to have of what children could read. I'm thinking... Yeah. Well, so you're talking about books that at that point were 50 years old. Right. Well, a modern kid has to do over 100 years of mental cultural mediation yeah. of different technology, different terminology. Mm-hmm. It's not just the reading level. It's trying to understand what in the world is being described. It's right. actually much harder huh. for a modern 10-year-old to read uh, you know, a book from 1890 than it was in the 50s. Yeah. It was much harder in the 50s than it was in 1910. That's a point. This isn't that kind of story. The no. story talks about a quaint cottage and yeah. you know yeah. gives us a sort of the comedic <clears throat> village of one married couple right. and everything. And it, 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 I thought it worked for that. Which yeah. is why 
<clears throat> I thought part of the point was that it was laughably out of date technology. Yeah, which is why dropping the ball on the environmentalism part of it kind of bothers me a bit. Because the horror of that would have been a much more immediate for the viewing audience than it is for the reading audience in 1990. It should have been more, because as you said, that's the start of, you know, some modern environmentalism, Earth Day, and what have you. It doesn't come across in the story. It doesn't come across in the book, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does seem kind of odd that he would just drop the ball on that. I do find it difficult to believe that a chemical could be more de- deadly than radiation, because at one point that is said. It's like, oh, come on. No. Even Rachel Carson wouldn't have said something quite that hyperbolic. I mean, it did kill that cat pretty quickly, it though. So. did. Yeah, I suppose so. I think he wouldn't have been happy unless Bert was laying on his back on the floor twitching with his limbs curled up like the dead ant. Oh, absolutely. I think that's what you wanted, was that's the exactly, death of Bert. Oh, well, not just Bert, but Hilda, too. Yeah, I, I just want them all gone. You wanted to make sure oh, yeah. they didn't have a continuing bloodline after no, this? No, I didn't want a Bert and Hilda spinoff. Yeah. Maybe the head of uh, serials at the BBC was like, oh, we don't want a spinoff here. Let's get rid of these characters before people start becoming fans of them. Oh, Lord, that would just be terrible. <laughs> Why did I have that? I hated the voice called Smithers. I can't do the I can't do the um Mr. Burns voice. <laughs> that's what I was trying to do there. Sorry. <laughs> Alright. Just going over my notes real quick because we may have exhausted our discussion of this book already. It was a very large print. It was. Oh my god. And oh yeah, and the end of it. The only noteworthy thing about the end of this book is that the last time we read a Dick's novel, actually you didn't, but when Danny and Sheena and I did uh, Unearthly Child, it also segued rather ham-fistedly into a Dalek story. The ending of this was very... not handled well. <laughs> like, like, I've read the vast majority of the books we've done for the podcast so far, and this one just like... yeah. Just like steamrolls right into it, just like crashes. <laughs> like, what, the f- what in the world? What in the world? Well, I guess the reason why he's doing that is because he already knows what the next book's going to be because he wrote it. Yeah, he wrote it years previously. But yeah, outside in the ruins of London, the Daleks were waiting. It's like, I want to be in that book. I don't want to be in this <laughs> one anymore. Yeah. It's like, good God. Well, but he effectively marketed the next book to you. There is that. The and next book like, that had already come out. It, he which set, he wrote. He which once again set the bar low. Yes, and... which he'll get some of the money from. Well, yeah. maybe. I don't know. I think they were I think they were actually paid a lump sum. Because even with... Um, what was before Marco Polo? Edge of Destruction? Uh, yes. Uh, even with Edge of Destruction, they segue into Marco Polo, but it's... It's not as just like, yeah, blunt. It's not just like here's the story. Here's what's happening. <laughs> oh, because Marco Polo, they they just kind of he he <laughs> just gives you like this image of things to come, yeah. not just like the Daleks are there and they're going to destroy everything. Exactly. At the end of Edge of Destruction, they're somewhere, yeah. and it's cold. Yeah, and that's it. Whereas at the beginning of Marco Polo, you get a completely different opening scene. Totally. Yeah. And totally. the two actually are meant to be right on top of each other, unlike this. Yeah. Yeah, the last scene in the televised version is not the first scene of Dalek Invasion of Earth. 
Yeah. It's just really, oh, you want to hear bluntness. Um, in the next book, and I'll point this out to you, there actually is one of those moments where it says, it, there's an asterisk in the print, and at the bottom it says, see Doctor Who and the Daleks. And it refers back to the previous novel, and it's almost as if they're like, available in stores near you mm-hmm. right now. Oh, yeah, God. like comic books. Okay, say like comics comic books did used that. to do. Was it in the 70s they started doing that, or 70, did they do it in the 60s? They did do it in the 60s. In so. fact, Stan Lee was writing most of those, so they were delightfully cheesy. It's like if you miss yeah. that story, true believers, yes. go see event. I'll uh, go read Avengers number three right yes. now. It's like, of course, that's yeah. fine, but to get it in print is kind of weird. Yeah, but yeah, he, that's basically what he's doing. We haven't talked about the cover because it's again one of the ones with the shit logo, as I call it. <laughs> from Ooh, the that era. is bad. It is because we've talked about the fact that that comes from the first computer-generated Doctor mm. Who opening sequence. That's why there's that hard edge between the logo and the artwork. Speaking which... of comics, this looks like that really sketchy computer-generated Iron Man comic mm-hmm. from around, would that be oh, 92 yeah. or 93? Was that, that to be... Extremis? Was that the name of it? No, no, that's from only about 10 years ago. Oh, this okay. was something that... Oh, yeah, the one that they did, like, on it a Commodore or something. Even been Frank Miller involved in some way. Mm-hmm. But it was supposed to be cutting-edge, computer-generated. I couldn't look at more than three pages. Pages of it. it was so odious was, to the modern eye. It was the eye. same time they did one for Batman, too. Mm. It was something similar to that. Yeah. But yeah, that cover is just... <laughs> the just because we can Yeah. effects. Right. I mean, if it had been the other logo, I think that would have been a perfectly fine cover image because you do have the giant fly coming up behind and hard on going high there. It's been enough time that if nostalgia for the style... Or affection for it as Kish would ever develop, it would have developed by now. It's never going to happen. That's just an offense to the cornea. Yeah, that's uh, agree. Oh, and the fly appears in that one scene. Yeah, yeah. It's so you'll not see a more bit. character development for the fly. Is what yeah. you're saying? And maybe well, a spinoff <laughs> wherein he devours. <laughs> The, the village of two people. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you know, I'm just thinking of, like, uh, Reign of Terror Feeds had... into his larvae. It had oh, the, the doctor on it. It had the guillotine yeah. on it. It had two French soldiers on it. It had the Bastille, or at least, like, the Parisian mm-hmm. uh, skyline in the back. Like, yeah, there were other parts of the story that could have... It's marketing. I definitely got the impression from the book that the previous book was much more interesting than the next book would be as well. <laughs> yes, yeah. true. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. But you're right, there should be a giant cat on the cover. There should be a cat, or there should be, you know, a bottle of chemicals. Or, or a dead some, fly. You, <laughs> dead fly, you know, something else. I mean, really, I get it. Yes, the doctor with the fly, it shows you the scale, <laughs> planet of the giants. It's okay, I get it. Yeah. But it do- it doesn't really well bearing really bearing in mind that this book was probably produced just because it's 1990, the show has actually been off the air by this point. Yeah, and they don't know know whether it's coming back, so they're just trying to eke out a uh, release schedule. In fact, most of the last season was released in novelization form after this book. Um. So they're trying to fill in the blanks. This is the last Hartnell one, obviously. Then they'll get to the last Troughton one. Then they run out of material because they run out of material. Yeah. So yeah, that makes some sense. But yeah, it's just... Mm. 
Well, as we always do, <laughs> let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of this book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, which no one has taken me up on yet, yeah, really? I mean, honestly, this is our ninth episode. Come on, guys. Do it, guys. Do it. Yeah, simply read the book, which I admit is a bit of a hurdle, but do it, <laughs> especially in this case. Write a review on Goodreads, and then write a comment on our Facebook page or on our subreddit, which is still pristine as the driven snow, <laughs> so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here, as I'm about to do. The average rating for this book out of five stars on Goodreads is 3.23, which strikes me as kind of weirdly high. That's that really high. Is. Yeah, high. so I've uh, taken a, quite a sampling here. So <laughs> I, I have never used Goodreads. Does it tend to grade on the curb? Relative to the genre the book is in? No, strangely enough. So this no. is like compared to Ulysses. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, it's one of those situations. So, yeah, they don't do that. It's five stars across the uh, platform. Right. Emma Lou gave it three stars and said, not the best book in the series. In fact, the Doctor and his companions barely do anything to move the plot. It would have gone about the same if they weren't there. I'm reading the books to find out about all the old episodes of The Doctor, so it was a bonus that it was a quick read, and I was able to get through it quickly. That's for damn true. Fill you there. Yeah. <laughs> Stormhawk, yes, that's their name, Stormhawk, <laughs> also gave it three stars and said this story could be called The Doctor Meets Silent Spring. The Doctor and his companions spend an afternoon in an English country garden, but in true Doctor Who fashion, they've been shrunk to an inch high. There's a massive moogie. Moggy, yeah, that's the British word for cat. And a man drunk with the dream of avarice who fails to listen to reason when confronted about his company's new insecticide, which will wreak ecological havoc upon the world, and at an inch high, the doctor can do little to prevent it, or can he? Do little to prevent it. Oh, Stormhawk. Goodness, you're as bad as I am. Okay. And finally, Daniel Kukwa, whom we've heard from before, gave him only two stars. And says this, I'm afraid this is a rather disappointing effort. The chance to expand upon a small three-part TV story squandered in favor of a quick and disposable adaptation. That's something we haven't talked about, but yeah. I find that that's the biggest problem with this, that you could have expanded it. Oh, totally. This could have been 150 pages. It wasn't. I'm also unhappy with some of the prickly nature of the TARDIS crew in the opening chapters, especially the handling of Barbara's character. It's all rather contrary to the close nature of the time travelers by the start of the second season. This could have been so much more. It's by far Terrence Dick's most disappointing effort since his novelization of Kenda. Yeah, that's going to be years from now when we get to Kenda, but yeah. So, I'm going to ask you, out of five stars, what would you give this, Allison? It's all about expectations. When I read The Bell Jar, I was expecting it to be just like one of my favorite things ever. Mm. And it was pretty good, but nothing like what I was expecting it to be. Yeah, me too. I thought this was going to be the sorriest piece of garbage I would ever read. And it was surprisingly entertaining, a couple of hours. So I'd give it like a full one and a half, possibly two if I had a second beer. A whole one and a half? No, I thought it would be like half a star. Like one and a half to two, sure. So, uh, wow. you know, maybe that's overly generous, but I thought it was fun. No, I think the reason we're so. reacting that way is because that's the lowest score we've ever given a book. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> right. and well, okay, but if, 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 
every right. scale is all of literature. <laughs> it's going to be really all right. I have. I have an allergy to adaptations. I hate them with a passion. Okay. If I had seen this episode, I would have been psychologically incapable of reading this. Really? So this is the opposite of, well, for example, my husband read all or many of the Star Trek novelizations growing right. up. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he explains it as, you know, even when it was coming on five days a week in the afternoon, it would be months or maybe even years till you hit that episode again. Yeah, true. And it was the only way of sort of revisiting it. Yeah. Well, I I didn't have that experience with any show that was no longer available or wouldn't be available um, that I loved that much at that age. I just hate the whole concept at its very core. Mm -hmm. So for me to give a full star at all is kind of amazing. And one and a half is really generous. Yeah. In context, if that makes sense. I would agree with that. Dalton? Yeah, I'm 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 there with you though. I'm like one and a half, two stars, which is the lowest I've given. Yeah, I'm usually pretty generous, but this one, like I said, it, this just doesn't have anything going on in it. It no. really is. It's eighty four pages of nothing. Yeah. But it could have been so much worse. It could have. It could have been. It could have. And later on, we will get worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even yeah. there were other books that I've. There were other books that we've recorded that I didn't enjoy. As much as this, but this one just seems like a waste of space. So yeah. that's why, to me, it's like... You're talking about Keys of Marinus. Yeah. Yeah, because that book is just like, bleh. And yet there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to it. So, you know, even even before I said, you know, reading the back of Keys of Marinus, mm-hmm. it, it had a lot going on. Reading the back of this book, it sounded like it would have a lot going on. And it didn't. There's yeah. just... It's, it, it, nothing. It's there's nothing. a dead guy... An operator, a giant fly, a dead cat. And it really, it, it could be more interesting. It could have been handled, you know, better. There could be more suspense. There could be more, more, period. There yeah. could be more. And there's not. So, yeah. yeah. It's I like just... that it was fairly simple, though. That there weren't a lot of plot machinations that were unnecessary to try to make it more, quote, interesting, end quote, but with the same thing, characterizations. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a point. Because sometimes I think I'm probably a little harsher on these books than I should be because I think a good yardstick for novelization is one that adds significantly to what's on screen. Yeah. If you're just getting script to page, then you're basically better off just putting the uh, DVD in the uh, DVD player and watching it if there's not much there. Um, Which is why I loved um, Reign of Terror so much. Yeah. Yeah, because I... I slept through the story, but the book is like, oh my god, this is fantastic. There's a lot more going on. There's much more going on. And Aztec's same thing. It's a fantastic story, but also it's very script-to-page. But Lucarati, who I usually just, you know, shit on constantly, actually added some stuff to it. Yeah. And the stuff was really interesting, like the mention of Jesus, for instance. I was like, whoa, that came out of nowhere, but it works. Yeah. Here... The extra stuff is Hilda and Bert. It's like, oh my god. There's really very little Hilda and Bert content. It just yeah was was so aggravating and irksome to you. Well, it's <laughs> aggravating and irksome because your... I remember the televised versions of them, and they're fine. I mean, it's just some you know elderly British couple, and that's perfectly fine. But by the same token, to have more of them. Mm. 
It's like, yeah. okay, there was a very good reason why they got cut. There's a very good reason why this is a three-parter, not a four-parter. Mm-hmm. It really should have been a two-parter. And this book, at however long it was, 118 pages, it's not even that long, 112 pages, is actually a bit long. Do you feel like uh, the, the, they're in there as a, as a kind of like conflict resolution? As a yeah. way of, the doctor can't do anything, but this, you know, couple that just so happens... This two-person village can yes. Right, that just, yes. just happens to stumble upon exactly. all the clues to put this thing together. They are a plot contrivance. Yeah. And um, Daniel Kukwa, when he says... Oh, I think it was Daniel Kukwa. Someone said something along the lines of, they need not have even been there. It wasn't yeah. Daniel Kukwa, it was the other one. Um, sorry, I'm not getting credit where credit is due. Emily said they barely did anything and they would not have been there. The only thing that would not have happened had they not been there is the exploding can. Yeah. And the cop was still coming because Hilda listened in on the conversation. This still would have ended up the same way. So, yeah, it could have been much more interesting. I would have liked a little more literary flourishes like Ian looked at the striations and the uh, concrete and realized how beautiful they were. And from his, <laughs> you know, from his perspective as a one-inch person, he realized that he'd never look at this the same way again. It's like, yeah, that would have been corny, yeah. but it would have been nice. Yeah, it would have had a... It doesn't happen. So instead we get a book that's one and a half stars. For me, anyway. Yeah. yeah. I would definitely agree. Oh, well. They can't all be winners, can they? No. Oh, well. But that's the point of reading them, is to discuss them yes exactly well thank you guys and thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time even for a book like this (laughs) next time we continue our double dicking with yet another terence dicks joint and this one is indeed doctor who and the dalek invasion of earth like I said last time. Sorry. Yes, thank you, Dom. <laughs> In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. If you had a comment on that page, if there's something that you think we missed here, or you just want to tell us you like us in words, you'll be entered in our next Target book giveaway. The last one didn't get given away, so I still have a copy of Do- Doctor Who and the War Games to give away. It's that same copy. Someone can have it, but you have to comment either on Facebook or on Reddit, our subreddit. So please check out our Facebook page at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces for more details. Our subreddit is at www.reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Also, feel free to give us a thumbs up on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, we're at dwtargetbc, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We are on, deep breath iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and hopefully by the end of the month we'll be on Podbean as well. Podbean? Podbean, indeed, if I can figure out how to make the damn thing work. (laughs) If you really like us, or you really, really don't like us, post your comments, suggestions, questions on any of the above uh, platforms, or email us at dwtarget at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. comment in the persona of Bert. (laughs) You'll have a troll who just goes by the name of Bert. Of course we will, because we get trolled all the time. No, we don't. No. No one ever ever talks to us.